Welcome to Escape the Earth. We are a sci-fi and fantasy book club transmitting from an undisclosed location within the San Antonio Public Library. We are supported by the San Antonio Public Library Foundation and are a part of the Tuned In family of podcasts. I'm your host, Liz, and with me today is... Tim. Hello, everybody. Yes, hello, everyone. Thank you to everyone for joining us today for newbies and old hats alike. Uh, Welcome to the newbies and welcome to the old hats. So today, Tim and I will be talking about the book called Into the Drowning Deep by Mira Grant. There will be spoilers in this episode. So if you haven't read this book or wanting to read this book and don't want it completely ruined for yourself, maybe pause, go read the book, and then come back. Otherwise, we shall begin. Yes, there will probably be some discussion of mispronunciations as well, so just be prepared for that. Yeah, that's like a theme, a theme with us. (laughs) So Mira Grant is the pseudonym or the uh, an alternate name for Seanan McGuire, and I'm just reading the bio off of her, her website from seananmcguire.com. And it says that she was born in Martinez, California, and raised in a wide variety of locations, most of which boasted some sort of dangerous native wildlife. And despite her almost magnetic attraction to anything venomous, she somehow managed to survive long enough to acquire a typewriter, a reasonable grasp of the English language, and the desire to combine the two. And the fact that she wasn't killed for using her typewriter at three o'clock in the morning is probably more impressive than her lack of death by spider bite. Often described as a vortex of the surreal, many of Shannon's anecdotes end with things like, and then we got the antivenom, or, but it's okay because it turned out the water wasn't that deep. She has yet to be defeated in a game of who here was bitten by the strangest thing and can be amused for hours by almost anything. Almost anything includes swamps, long walks, long walks in swamps, things that live in swamps, horror movies, strange noises, musical theater, reality TV, comic books, finding pennies on the street, and venomous reptiles. Shannon may be the only person on the planet who admits to using Kenneth Muir's horror films of the 1980s as a checklist. Shannon is the author of October Day Urban Fantasies, The Encrypted Urban Fantasies, and several other works, both uh, standalone and in trilogies or duology. In case that wasn't enough, she also writes under the pseudonym Mira Grant for details of her work as Mira. Check out miragrant.com. In her spare time, Shannon records CDs of her original filk music. Now I have to know what that is. Filk music. Filk? Yes, it's very deliberately filk music, I sense. It's some some kind of uh, mashup between folk and something else. I'm going to have to learn more about that. Um, <laughs> She's also a cartoonist and draws an irregularly posted autobiographical webcomic called With Friends Like These, as well as generating a truly ridiculous number of art cards. Surprisingly enough, she finds time 
to take multi-hour walks, blog regularly, watch a sickening amount of television, maintain her website, and go to pretty much any movie with the words blood, night, terror, or attack in the title. Most people believe she doesn't sleep. Shauna lives in an idiosyncratically designed labyrinth in the Pacific Northwest. Hmm, I wonder that if that's where Piranesi was set. <laughs> <laughs> I was whenever you said that I was like suburbia <laughs> which she shares with her cats Alice and Thomas a vast collection of creepy dolls and horror movies and sufficient books to qualify her as a fire hazard you know back when I when I was actively writing my wife used to call my office the the writer's torture chamber because my books had overflowed my bookshelves and Oh, wow. Stacked up on the floor, like that scene in Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters, which you probably haven't seen because I'm 30 years older than you. But anyway, back to the biography. She has strongly held and off expressed beliefs about the origins of the Black Death, the X Men, and the need for chainsaws in daily life, as do I. I think I must be related to her. I think she is your the best friend that you just never knew was out there. Right. Years of writing blurbs for conventional program books have fixed Shannon in the habit of writing all her bios in third person so as to sound marginally less dorky. That's always a good thing, sounding less dorky. Um, stress is on the marginally. It doesn't help that she also has so many hobbies. Shannon was the winner of the 2010 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, and her novel Feed, as Mira Grant was named as one of Publishers Weekly's Best Books of 2010. In 2013, she became the first person ever to appear five times on the same Hugo ballot. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool, and that's super impressive. And so Into the Drowning Deep is the rolling in the deep uh, I've seen it as number one in the series and number two, and I think you're going to give us the synopsis, right? Yes, yes. So Into the Drowning Deep is the full-length novel that was published after Into the Rolling Deep, which is a novella. Now, I, I don't think she has any intention of writing a sequel because I remember I was searching frantically when I first read this book years ago if there was a second one because yeah if you look on Goodreads it says in rolling deep rolling in the deep number one so then that makes you think oh is there going to be another one but I actually don't think there is but anyways so the summary seven years ago the Itargatis set off on a voyage to the Mariana Trench to film a mockumentary bringing to life ancient sea creatures of legend. It was lost at sea with all hands. Some have called it a hoax. Others have called it a marine time tragedy. Now, a new crew has been assembled, but this time they're not out to entertain. Some seek to validate their life's work. Some seek the greatest hunt of all. Some seek the truth. But for the ambitious young scientist, Victoria Stewart, this is a voyage to uncover the fate of the sister she lost. Whatever the truth may be, it will only be found below the waves. And we should note that that is the uh, the description of the book from 
it's Goodreads page. Yes, uh, yeah. And so the cast of characters on this, uh, Victoria Stewart is obviously the, the most important of the characters where you get the most of the view from, from her perspective. Yeah. There are, but there are multiple other people who have viewpoints. Victoria's sister Anne was lost on the Adder Gaddis. I find interesting early on, there's a note about the Adder Gaddis that talks about the goddess Adergatis, who supposedly flung herself into the sea in grief over the death of her human lover, which I find very interesting because that, that was on, uh, I don't know what page it was on. Oh, it was on page 55. Because as you know, Victoria ends up in the water near the end of this. Right, right. She does. So, so that was one thing that I found interesting. But some other people that uh, who have viewpoints, uh, Luis Martinez, who is Victoria's uh, lab partner, you get some of his perspective. You get a lot of perspective from Hallie Wilson and a little from Holly Wilson mm-hmm. and very little from Heather Wilson before she is gobbled up. And uh, yeah, who else? Uh, Olivia Sanderson. Yeah, Olivia. Did Judy mention Dr. Toth? Dr. Jillian Toth and uh, Mr. Theo Blackwell, who is Dr. technically Toth's, her husband. <laughs> Dr. Toth's estranged husband who joins a cult with Tommy Chong at the end of the book. <laughs> There's, did you already mention the hunting couple? And uh, so no. I remember their names. Jacques and Michi Abney. Oh, okay. Yes. I remember yeah. like one was Japanese and one was like French Canadian, but I couldn't remember their names. Right. She was she was Japanese but raised in Australia, which already that's disconcerting because <laughs> uh, I mean not to not to like profile, but it's like just just kind of odd to see someone with Asiatic features speaking with an Oxy accent. Yeah, for sure. Please. I know whenever I was imagining some of these characters in my mind, I was just like, that is such a weird combo in my head. <laughs> well, right. It, Cho Chang in Harry Potter, like she has a, a British accent. And so like would totally throw me. Yeah. Um, so please, please don't hate us. We, we love all people. We don't have anything against anybody. And No, uh, we don't. Especially Aussies. Please don't hate me for my fake Aussie accent, which was probably very badly done. So anyway, you get perspectives of all these people. And the Adergatis started out as a mockumentary based on some writings of Dr. Toth. Dr. Toth was not on the Adergatis, and that's a good thing because everyone on the Adergatis disappeared. And yeah, they all nobody, died. No, nobody was really sure how, but the video footage that was Leaked. Re- recovered from the, from the ship uh, seemed to display uh, some mermaid-like creatures that I wouldn't need, I don't know if they would, I would describe them as mermaid. I would call them more murder maids. Murder maids? They were murder maids because they were just like bloodlust 
taking people out. And so half half the world thinks that the the footage is fake. Half you know thinks it's real. Imagine after going through all its lawsuits, uh, Imagine is the company that organized the mockumentary. It's an entertainment company. They organize another expedition to to the Mariana Trench to see if they can rediscover the mer creatures again. So Imagine knows it's real, the footage. They know that everybody on the iTargatis died and that these creatures that killed them are real however for like tim said for legal reasons you know they they allow that rumor that it's fake to continue on but for this new expedition on the melusine they are going with the intent to find these creatures and that's why they like we have this hunt this extreme hunting couple of Michi and Jacques. Jacques, it was Jacques. Okay. Yeah. Because they realize that these are creatures who are very capable <laughs> of killing humans. So they try to be more prepared. But of course, in typical uh what's the best way to say it? Like this typical, like the corporate needs totally overweigh, or I'm sorry, overshadow and outweigh everything else. They they put all these measures in place on this new ship with this hunting couple. They have more security guards who were really just like chosen for their looks. They're actually like useless. And they have these shields that are supposed to go down and basically just like encompass all the open spaces on the Melusine, but it never works and it never works to like the very end. Right. They get it, they get it fixed after the 11th hour when it's really almost like why. Yeah. It's like, what's the (laughs) point now? (laughs) Right. What's the point? The ship sets out their very first, experiment in the area they send a scientist down in a submersible minnow and she decides that she's got to get be the first person in history of the world who has to reach the very bottom of the uh, challenger deep and lo and behold she discovers these these creatures and Mm -hmm. they attack her and break her submersible open basically and and she's lost within just a within just a couple of minutes basically yeah the way the creatures are described they say the face is more simian than human with a flat nose defined by two long slits for nostrils a surprisingly sensual mouth brimming with needled teeth it is a horror of the deep gray-skinned and feminine in the broadest sense of the term an impression lent by the delicate structure of the bones and the tilt of its wide liquid eyes. When it blinks, a nictating membrane precedes the eyelid. It has hair of a sort, a writhing mass of glittering filament strands that cast their bioluminescent light on the whole. Now that description kind of reminded me of the Fiji mermaid, which was a thing that P.T. Barnum used to display. And the history of the Fiji mermaid is pretty, is pretty interesting too. 
So an American sea captain, Samuel Barrett Eads, and this is off the Fiji Mermaid Wikipedia page, um, bought the mermaid from Japanese sailors in 1822 for $6,000. Can you imagine what that would be worth today? Like how much he paid in, so these were $1822. I mean, it's got to be like $200,000 today that he paid for this thing, which was essentially the torso of a monkey sewn onto a koi fish or something. This makes me just, this is why foreign countries have jokes about Americans. Well, I, I think Eads was actually English. No, no, he was an American sea captain. <laughs> and Americans, okay, so you're right. So yes, the scorn is earned. Yes, the scorn <laughs> <laughs> So Eads bought it for $6,000 in 1822, and Barnum uh, leased it from him for $12.50 a week. I would like to know how much Barnum actually raised off of that. I mean, Barnum, Barnum said a sucker was born every minute, but he certainly was not a sucker. No, he, he was an opportunist. Yes. The original Fiji mermaid was lost in some fires that destroyed some of Barnum's collectibles, but several other replications of it have been conducted. And so you can view pictures of the various ones online and they're all pretty nightmarish looking. Uh, um, I imagine so. So I don't remember, I don't know what where you were reading in that description of the mermaid, but that was from page 16. Now the, the mermaids, when you do meet them, they are much bigger and they're nearly all male. Yeah, that was like so. So, okay, full disclosure, I had read this book like five or so years ago, and then I really wanted to reread it for our podcast just because I feel like there's not a lot of really unique mermaid fiction out in the science fiction fantasy genre. So I thought Mary Grant's book was just so phenomenal and well-written, and the, the angle she took to describe and depict these mermaids was so fascinating because she really took like a pseudoscientific and I say pseudo because I mean I feel like she did some research and actually put some like very real science in here but obviously I I say pseudo because the the reality of mermaids is I'm going to say still up for debate (laughs) She, she didn't put a lot of science into it. I, I felt like there was a lot of very, a very good scientific um, uh, background for it. So I'm kind of surprised that it's not technically categorized as science fiction. We have it cataloged as fiction at the San Antonio Public Library. But that's one thing I've always found kind of confusing about our catalog system is because there's like two other books that I've read that I was similar to you, Tim, very surprised that Sapple had them cataloged as just fiction and not science fiction and fantasy, because I'm just like, this is obviously science fiction. Like, why is it just in fiction? So that's just an interesting little side note observation. But on, so on page 151, which takes place when Heather is in the submersible and she sees these creatures and it's right before she dies. 
she also has a description of the mermaids and I just I actually feel like I was just skimming over it right now and it I feel like it also lends to your your observation that it kind of sounds like this Fiji mermaid because <laughs> there's this one part where it says doo, 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 doo. its face was something like a viper's fish and something like a mummified apes and something like the shadows that sometimes chase her through her dreams its eyes were wide and round and fixed on the submersible set above a mouth that seemed too full of teeth to be possible a cloud of filmy hair surrounded its head in individual strands, somehow too thick, each of them glowing at the end with bioluminescent light. So that was Heather's description of the creatures right before they started attacking her submersible. So that was just another description I wanted to point out because I thought it was good. So the Melusine, they assemble this crack team of scientists. They go to the Mariana Trench. They send Heather Wilson down in her submersible. She decides to go much further than she was instructed to go. And she stirs up the, the mer creatures, uh, which they later switch from calling mermaids to calling sirens. And they, they begin to kind of systematically attack the ship. And you find out as you go through this that the entertainment company, Imagine Entertainment, has hired these security guards who are really just models with guns and the two big game hunters. And they've left port even though their defensive shields aren't aren't working. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in this book, when the shields are, are up, that means they're not engaged. When they're down, it means they're engaged. So that's going to be confusing to some science fiction people. But at any rate, they they made bad decision after bad decision on this. And they go out, they stir these things up, they begin to systematically attack the boat. And so there's this race against time element. Can they learn enough about them to defeat them? Or will this be a repeat of the Atargatis? And Holly Wilson and Heather Wilson are both deaf. They have a sister named Hallie Wilson. So there are three Wilsons to begin with. And Hallie usually acts as the translator for Heather and Holly. Heather dies and Hallie gets sucked into another assignment with Theo Blackwell, who's the main representative from the entertainment company they have captured one of the sirens and they figured out that these creatures can very perfectly mimic human voices. So really any sound, right? Any sound that's part of their hunting technique. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they also communicate with each other via signs. So they have like multiple levels to their communication. And so Hallie begins learning to sign with one of the, with the captured siren. And they start to develop an understanding and that siren actually saves them at one point. It, mm-hmm. it, uh, it signs to the others to, to leave them be. Um, were you disappointed at all that they didn't release the siren? Um, I wasn't because I figured that was very on brand for Imagine 
and Theo because by the time the siren is captured, it's a little, it's further into the book. Like I'm, I'm looking at the physical book and I ha- I actually have a bookmarked where they release the dolphins. Oh man, Twitter. Yeah, that was okay. That was, there was actually a lot of parts of this book that made me uncomfortable the second time around. And I don't know if it's because I've just gotten more squeamish or because I just blocked them out from my first reading. So I completely forgot about them. But on this ship, they took three dolphins that the imagined scientists, you know, they communicate with dolphins because communications with dolphins is actually pretty advanced in this book now if that's true or not I don't know and basically they said they told these dolphins who were raised in captivity like if you help us do this we'll let you stay out in the ocean and so the dolphins were like okay cool they basically agreed and so about halfway I'm looking at my little sticky notes here yeah about halfway I'm holding up my book for Tim to see I think that's about halfway they released the dolphins in an attempt to like speak or like gain more knowledge about these creatures so that they can survive against them, the humans. Of course, all the dolphins died. I mean, big surprise. And I was so upset when they sent out the dolphins. I was just like, why? You just basically sent these murder maids a snack. Right. Some mammalian sushi yes so they but the siren that they capture actually swims into the enclosure that the dolphins had been in and so that's how they capture it so that train of thought is what made me want to bring up the dolphins because they capture the siren in the very enclosure that they held the dolphins and they and they were gonna try to capture a siren like you find out as the book goes on that that was kind of the whole point of the milieu scene they actually wanted to capture a live specimen they were just like oh well we didn't really expect it to go into the dolphin enclosure but um hey that works right (laughs) we can pull anchor and go now except before they get a chance to do that the ship is swarmed and the shields don't work and so yeah, yeah, and like, you, and the captain gets in, so like, no distress call can be sent, and nobody's there to like actually get the ship moving, and you know, other things, other things happen throughout the course of this. They're trying to learn things about the the mermaids that they've captured or the sirens that they've captured. They discover that they have a bunch of little parasites that live in their hair. They're like pseudo shrimps and pseudo pseudo crabs. Yeah, and um. Tori discovers through this process that her ex-boyfriend is on the ship and Tori has formed a relationship with Olivia who is um, imagines like TV personality TV personality that's on board the ship and uh, so she discovers that her boyfriend's on there and he takes a bunch of the ex-boyfriend um, ex-boyfriend he takes a bunch of the uh, small parasites, I guess. They're like mermaid lice. and Yeah, they're basically uh, like mermaid lice. Mermaid lice. And 
he gets stabbed in the hand by one of them and and dies. So the uh, you know one of the uh, earliest deaths is when Jason dies via mermaid shrimp lice. Sting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it was really comical too because like he was he was poking at one and it squirted him with pus and then he jumped back and he slipped and he put his hand down on another one and that was that was how he got got it but in in okay that was a very comical and i do believe well-deserved death because he was <laughs> not a very nice person but but you know all these scientists like the second something regarding new knowledge or something comes up they uh, they get taken over by this hubris that is just amazing like heather wilson she's going down there submersible everybody's telling her to stop she's like nope i'm going all the way to the bottom yeah, yeah. i'm gonna be the first one ever my name will be in the history books and uh, Jason, same thing. When he gets those pseudo crabs and pseudo shrimp, like I'm going to be the first to study these. Ooh, look what I can do with my hands! You know, <laughs> that's so true. You're making me think of um, there. There is a TikTok trend going on right now where you the sound is from Lion King when Simba's like talking to his uncle scar when he's still a cub and he's like i'm gonna be king of pride rock one day and rule the world <laughs> yes very much like that and even characters that i like did it like lewis yeah. at, at one point like he engages his little cameras that he's got deployed out in the water and he sees one of the sirens go and start climbing the ship and he's like "Ooh, i'm gonna be the first one to get a picture of a live one that's and, true he does and he runs up there and he almost gets himself killed basically and, and he was he was actually the character that i i liked the best in this really uh, yeah well i mean just i don't know why i don't no no yeah i mean you, you don't have to explain yourself i would just find that cool that you liked him the most because i mean there is a there is a very good cast of characters in this book i think i think they're all pretty good granted some of them like if they were real people i would probably like kick them in their shins i'm looking at you theo <laughs> even dr toth dr toth so in my notes i wrote that dr toth is the sirenologist slash mom of the group <laughs> oh but she's mean too like she is really she... mean I just picture her as having this constant uh, face like she just stepped in dog poo. Mm. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Mm. just <laughs> she just seems to be in a really bad standoffish mood all the time. She makes everybody around her nervous. Um, and then, you know, at one point, like, she becomes everything on the ship. She's involved in the in the operating room when they're trying to save people she's studying the venom you know like she's performing Dr. A, a necropsy on the dead siren right i'm like okay dr toff cannot be everywhere all at once sorry i i know mira grant or uh, shauna mcguire probably really likes dr toff but yeah she can't be she can't be everywhere all at once yeah. And um, but you know, I so, do think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I was going to say, and so the the way this resolves itself too, kind of kind of bothers me too, because it's very much like Deus Ex Machina, where you know the hand of God comes in and just ties it up in a neat little bow at the end. Like uh, first, there was this race we're going to try and figure them out before they get to us, and we're going to be able to defeat them. And then, you know, you get this, oh, well, the longer they're out in oxygen, they're starting to get kind of woozy. And then, you know, you have the really giant old one that's going to come out right at the end that is the actual female. Okay, pause. Pausing. Because I wrote in all caps in my notes, what does the big female look like? Because I have no idea mentally what to imagine when I read this creature other than just like one of those giant deep sea fishes with their teeth sticking out like they have a terrible under and overbite. And then they have one of those like weird antennae or like the like single tentacle coming out of their brain with like a little bioluminescent bulb at the tip. Just like hanging in front of them like that is all i'm picturing but on like a giant scale but then within the like logic and science of the book that doesn't make sense because the mermaids or the sirens are the males this is the female i'm like that does not seem anatomically compatible did you know that the angler fish that 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 bioluminescent bulb kind of like hypnotizes its uh prey oh it does yeah, it causes them to uh, to freeze and watch that, so it pays attention to it, and not the fish that's behind it. Oh, um, was that convoluted description just my description of an angler fish? That that was. But, oh, okay. <laughs> but but I do sort of wish, like the way that it was resolved, the solution was something more than leave them in the air long enough and turn on all the light. Yeah, that's true. So I did like Tori's role in it. Like whenever she did jump into the water or like fell in, because I don't think she jumped in. I think she fell in. She fell in. Like that whole bit where she's like, you know, trying to figure out what she's going to do. And she's like, okay, there are these sirens swimming next to me. And it's only because they're like, why would these idiots be in the water with us? That she's like not being eaten and dragged down and killed. I thought that was a very like intense and, and and fun kind of moment to see her like work through that mentally and then figure out a way to escape it i think she was in the spirit world she was a ghost the whole time she was a ghost the whole time what <laughs> that's that's why they didn't see her oh my gosh <laughs> okay tim um, um so there was two things i well i think i kind of brought one up already but like you said at the very beginning of the show, Tim, most of the point of view of the book is from Tori. We occasionally get some other people, but we also get one chapter where it's from the mermaid slash sirens point of view. And then also from the dolphins point of view, like when they're released. So I thought the mermaid part was really interesting just because I mean, you don't normally, whenever it's like 
like in horror because like this book is very much like a genre blending one where it's like horror sci-fi fantasy kind of blend if there's like a creature it's usually just an adversary that's it that's it it's just an adversary that the protagonist and the the other people are trying to overcome and beat and like survive but in this like you almost you get like their thought process which I just thought was was really interesting to read right yeah that was my my only real problem with it Sean and built up the character Ray a lot only to have him wiped out like very quickly I thought he was going to have a bigger role and maybe his only role was just to demonstrate like how strong the sirens were maybe yeah that's true like here's this former MMA fighter and he doesn't stand a chance against it. Because he gets his face eaten off. Yeah, really yeah. quickly. Another thing that I noticed about this was like, you know, we just finished Piranesi, which he's constantly starting these things as as entries with dates, you know, the 27th day in the eighth month of the year, the albatross came to the southwestern vestibule. And I felt like this was starting with the pathopelagic zone. Yeah. September 2nd, 2022. And September 2nd, 2022 is going to be the longest day in the history of planet Earth. Just based on what I've read from (laughs) this book. in, In this book, like that day it took forever to get to september 3rd (laughs) that's true i never so i really don't ever pay attention to those elements in a book like i never do but it's like i'm marking my my progress and i'm like man i'm still on the same day (laughs) feel like there's been at least 10 days in there yeah, of course, you're getting multiple viewpoints at the same day. So some of the action is overlapping, but... Right, but still, you're just like, what? I'm still here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I did think it was cool how she broke up the book into, like, instead of part one or part two, it was, yeah, surface, zone one, pelagic, zone two, photic, zone three, aphotic, blah, blah. Because I, I thought it kind of built the tension as the book went on because it's like the deeper you get into like these oceanic zones of the book like it's almost like the more the creatures of the deep are coming up to meet you so I don't know I just thought it was a cool little little it was it just made me made me snicker because uh, it remind reminded me of Piranesi a little bit yeah that's true I didn't even think about that so I think we've covered a lot of this. Yeah, I think so too. Was there anything special that you wanted to say? Uh, yes. So this will be my last episode on Escape the Earth. Uh, thank you to everyone who has been listening, but I am no longer a part of the Sapple family. So I might pop back in every now and then as a guest, but you should be hearing Tim talking with the new co-host on our next episode. Or maybe several. Or maybe several. 
there you go. We might he might change it up every episode. We haven't quite figured that out yet, but I just want to say thank you to everybody. Thank you to Tim for this wonderful experience and and uh, you know we finally worked to realize the podcast dream we had for so long. <laughs> and yep. I I think it's been going really well. And I just, I hope this podcast stays going and I will definitely morph into an avid listener. Just, well, you know, my goal is to get a Hugo award. So I'm going to keep pushing for that. I want a Hugo for Sapple. Heck yeah. And I will be cheering you on. Thank you very much. You forced me to do something that I have been thinking about for a long time. And it's all, it's always been fun working with and, uh, so we want to thank everybody for listening and remember that every book we discuss is available for checkout through the San Antonio Public Library. You can visit them online at mysapple.org. That's M-Y-S-A-P-L dot If you get a chance to, please rate, review, and subscribe. It will help us out tremendously. You can view our book list, our reviews, our suggested reads on Goodreads. Go to the groups page and search for Sapple Escape the Earth. That's S-A-P-L, Escape the Earth. Um, You can write us with stories, suggestions, random thought, interesting sci-fi or geek culture info at sappleescapetheearth at gmail.com. That's all squished together like one word. And... You know, join me and whoever next month when we discuss Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Escape the Earth.